welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Curbs. And I'm Lish. And this week, we're hoping you'll accept this, Rose, as we revisit a tale as old as time, Beauty and the Beast. So be our guest. And pour yourself a spot of tea. As we enter the enchanted world that changed the way we see animation forever. Well, Lish... The time has come for us to discuss every mom's favorite Disney animated film, Beauty and the Beast. You and I have not always seen eye to eye on this one in the past, but I think we can both agree that it is a solid princess film, right? Oh, it's definitely solid. Like, it's it's a good movie, okay? I, I've been taking a lot of heat lately, mostly from my sisters who think that I hate this movie, and... I'll get into my thoughts a little bit later, but I do not hate it. I think it's a great, you know, addition to like the princess franchise and it's solid. Yeah. And I, I know that we've talked about the fact that you don't hate it. It's just not your favorite before that's fine. But I would like to call out that when you and I were in Disney world and I insisted we see the stage show, you were not happy about it. You hated it from beginning to end. I made you sit through the walkout song and I belted out both parts. You were embarrassed. You weren't happy. So is it. Okay. But the stage show is just terrible though. I, That feels very harsh to me. If you enjoy the film, I think it's a great adaptation of the film, which is why I'm just surprised that you like the film, but not the stage show. But I know that we're not here to talk about the stage show. I just need to get that off my chest because like you're, the stage you're show is the one, one my... in Hollywood studios that's like Absolutely. condensed and like, it's so I love bad, it. Curbs. It's so It's bad. so good. No, like, I love it. But you know what? showing that? I don't even know. Yes. Yes. I saw it two years ago at Mickey's like not so scary Halloween. Like when my friend and I went and we were Clopan and Esmeralda and we saw Beauty and the Beast and it was amazing. But I think maybe one of the reasons that it just hits me so hard is because this has been one of those movies that held an elusive place in my mind because I didn't own the VHS growing up. This was a newer one. I didn't get it in my household until we were double digits. So it felt special. It's always felt yeah, like, I get that. you know, kind of unique that way you, you had and to go to like a friend's house to watch it it was like a slumber party movie yes and one of my best friends yeah. loved it so much that she actually had a beauty and the beast sleeping bag which was also lit that was money Cute. so i mean Cute. to go back in time to the 90s and get all that merchandise but i digress i think we can both agree though Because of how familiar this movie is to us, because our moms love it, because it's been around forever, when we started prepping for this episode, we both kind of assumed that we would know so much about it already, because it's a classic and a favorite, but there were a lot of little Mm -hmm. details and stories behind the scenes that just enriched the whole experience to either learn them for the first time or to explore them again. Is that accurate for you too? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I felt like there was a lot of things that I didn't really know about the making of because you kind of just see this Mm -hmm. movie and you see the Oscars and you see, you know, the awards and the prestige and like what it did for animation. But you don't really know like, oh, like all this like there, you know, there were like several iterations that we'll discuss and like a lot uh, that actually happened to going into making Mm -hmm. this movie that it was so. Yeah, it was really cool to learn some of that stuff. And this movie, because it's so beloved, also has like a rabid community online. I would like to share with you, before we really dive (laughs) into this, just a few of the crazy fan theories I found online about this. I don't think you're ready for these. Oh boy, I'm probably not. (laughs) The first one is fairly obvious. I think a lot of adults put this together, but I'm just going to call it out. Um, We still want to be a PG podcast, but... The most common theory I found is that the blonde triplets, the bimbets, are prostitutes. They are always seen in the streets or at the bar where mm-hmm. they're the only women. They're wearing worn out ball gowns, which were typical of prostitutes in France at the time. So like that's that's a little dark, uh, probably likely, but a little dark. Yeah. Um, it, for it, the cultural it grounding. Fits. It really fits. Yeah. <laughs> it tracks for sure. 
it seems odd and out of place in a children's film, but I mean, Disney has done things like this before. The second fan theory that I thought was super interesting. This is my favorite. One common theory out there is that Belle made the whole thing up. That the whole story of the Beast in the Enchanted oh. Castle is a fantasy of her imagination, which makes sense when people say what's wrong with her. She's crazy. And then the Beast yeah. is actually her characterizing Gaston into this like, you know, vile human that she's trying to transform. So like, you know, the Beast and the Gaston both don't know how to read. They're both boorish and violent. So mm -hmm. she's actually using this fantasy as a way to work through how she feels about Gaston, who in this particular theory is her husband. So that one's a wild one and my favorite. I love I love that. I that makes me like the movie so much more. Right? Like I wish that was the actual story. I think it's clever and it's uh, clever. It's like lost. It ends and someone wakes mm. up. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, there are obviously anyone who goes looking for these theories is going to find evidence of them, right? It's the mm -hmm. same way that people can, you know, convince others that people didn't land on the moon or whatever. I'm going to be honest. I'm more interested in these conspiracies than the ones about space exploration. But yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of things that could line up with that if you wanted it to. And then the third one that I thought was really interesting is that the castle and the village are trapped in a time loop. So why does the beast have a portrait of himself as an adult if he was a child when he was cursed? That doesn't make any sense. Chip is still a child after the transformation. But again, that doesn't make sense with timelines. Oh, and Belle and her father moved to town after the curse took place, which is why they aged and no one else did. And the fact that the villagers are doing the same thing over and over and no one seems to change, like the fact that her lines are like, there goes the baker with his tray, like always. So that one was also not quite as dark per se, but an interesting look. I think most people in these conspiracy communities would agree that that one's the weakest, but still an interesting lens to look at some of these things through. Yeah, Everyone's always wondered how Chip is a child, right? And like the issue of the beast age has never made sense to people. So if this is a way to explain it away and make people feel better about it, I'm all for it. I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to any of those conspiracies myself, but I was intrigued and fascinated to find them as we dove into really how this film was made. Yeah, I mean, I think that adds some really like interesting little uh interesting little tidbits there. Like I think mm -hmm. uh, like you said the second one in particular was like that's that's very smart. I like that. Yeah. I like that deep dive. And and like I said, I think it really speaks to how deeply people love this movie, which is why we mm -hmm, were excited for sure. to look at the moving pieces behind the scenes. So this is the perfect segue. Let's do that. Let's jump in. Let's do it. The last time we talked, we were speaking about The Little Mermaid. And at this point, the year is like, you know, 1988, 1989. We're riding mm -hmm. high off of the success of The Little Mermaid. People are feeling excited about animation again, about Disney in particular. And the fact that Beauty and the Beast is a return to that kind of fairy tale storytelling that Disney mm -hmm. is so well known for now was really the way that the thing that paved the way for Beauty and the Beast to do well. People expected now a certain quality of fairy tale story from Disney and Disney was expected to deliver. And The Little Mermaid once again proved that Disney animation could maintain the high standards of quality that Walt had set in the 30s, 40s and 50s with his first three princess films. I think also like culturally there was just like an injection of energy into like the studio yes. itself. And like we talked about in the little mermaid, how morale was kind of down going into that. They were like kicked out of their building and like all this stuff happened. And we're kind of on the flip side of that now where they had this huge success and like all eyes mm -hmm. are on them, but like there there's like a momentum and an energy there. Yes. And this was an energy and momentum that Roy Disney, Walt's nephew, really wanted to keep going. He was really mm -hmm. passionate about making sure that the animation department, which is what he saw as like the foundation of the Disney company, he wanted mm -hmm. to make sure that Disney's association with fairy tales and good animation kept running. So yeah. what was the influence or what was the desire to make Beauty and the Beast the next film? Well, for one thing, as with all the other fairy tales they had done up until this point, it's a very well-known story. While the best known mm -hmm. version was written in the 1700s, it exists all over the world. Basically, every single culture has an example of a story where there's like a brutish person 
and a more beautiful person talking about the beauty within. And Beauty and the Beast is also interesting because it's what some might call a more quote unquote sophisticated fairy tale. So not only is the romantic couple not immediately evident the way that it is in Sleeping Beauty, Mm -hmm. Cinderella, or Snow White, there's also a lot of really dark themes. So kidnapping, you're cursing children, there's death. So there's a lot of moralistic elements that come out in this story. And then the Disney version became a collage of these different versions and all the best bits from all over the world. Well, I feel like that suited everything they were doing, like along with just like making the story more adult, you know, like there was Mm -hmm. just like from the get go, just from the story that they chose, they're kind of broadening their audience to actually appeal to a new demographic. Yes. And it shows an awareness that their demographic was expanding with the success Mm -hmm. of The Little Mermaid. They were no longer just creating films for children. They were creating films for everybody and for families and more Mm -hmm. of those, like you said, kind of broader demographics. Absolutely. And what I thought was fascinating, and you and I have touched on this before, we knew this, but again, a little nugget that came back to mind was that Walt had originally planned on making this film back in the 30s when they did Mm -hmm. Snow White they had a whole list of these fairy tales that they wanted to turn into animated films but it just never got off the ground they tried again in the 1950s still couldn't get it off the ground because that second half of the story they just couldn't make it feel fresh and lively it always just felt really dark and moody and grim and Disney is not synonymous with that type of feeling. I think that there are films now that speak more to that. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking even Frozen with Elsa's like inner turmoil. They're better at dealing with that. But at the time, no, that just, it wasn't working. Well, I also feel like there's a few key events that they added that that bring mm -hmm. it together and make it work. And we can kind of go through a little bit what those are. But like, I feel like if, you know, you take a few things out, the story just doesn't Mm -hmm. work, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And because of these story challenges, it became this kind of like Moby Dick white whale for Disney animators. Like it was a project that they felt needed to be made, but Mm -hmm. they also were conscious of the fact that if it couldn't be as good or better than not only the previous Disney films, but also the French live action adaptation from the 40s of Beauty and the Beast that did really well, Mm -hmm. there'd be no point in making it because people are not going to accept a version that's worse than any of that. Right. Right. And I, I mean, I respect what they did. They, they basically, they hired someone, his name is Richard Purdom to um, he's based in the UK. They sent a bunch of their team over there and, you know, basically tasked them with like putting the story together, making the story work, drawing out the storyboards and, Okay, Curbs. I actually, you can watch some of this online. I watched like mm-hmm. the first 20 minutes. It was horrible. Like it's so oh, bad. It's abysmal. Like, it's, it's really, truly terrible. There's just like a lot of things that are just like not interesting. And it's just very like flat. There's like not a really a strong like supporting cast. And it kind of really relies a lot on Belle who was not really well developed hmm. Yeah. And I feel, too, that as I was watching it, what struck me is that there were too many characters. The story mm-hmm. was spread out among like there was an aunt. Belle had a sister. Maurice wasn't a doddering old fool. Gaston was in there immediately. And he was a jerk from the beginning. He was not sneaky. Like there was nothing interesting about his character. He was just kind of an asshole um, right off the bat, which also was like, they weren't sure what to do with the villain so they just like made a couple different villains the Mm -hmm. you know mother figure that they brought in was like horrible and Gaston was horrible and then Mm -hmm. they like go to the beast and he's horrible and it was just like a very like yell against the world Mm -hmm. now I will I will say that the Purdom reel made the live action adaptation make more sense to me because one of the things that always bugged me about there's so many things that bug me about the live action adaptation don't even get me going but the thing that confused me was why Maurice's character was not the way I expected him to be like they cut and paste everything else Mm -hmm. from the animated version and then Maurice was more of a straight character like he wasn't foolish and the music box thing and now it makes sense because that Purdom reel 
has that plot mm-hmm. line of like, oh, this music box that's worth so much and like it belonged to her mother. So like I like I respect that they recycled some of those elements into the live action, even though I don't enjoy the live action film. So that was an interesting connection that I made. For as sure. Well. Um, and I mean, they they spent a lot of time kind of basically going through and storyboarding this, putting this together uh, for Katzenberg to essentially scrap it. He saw it in 1989 and was just like, no. Um, and Purdom resigned immediately after. And I think that was the end of them like working through this in the UK. They brought the production back to the US. Um, mm-hmm. They got Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, you know, really involved again and just right. like, had to see, is there a way that we can resurrect the story and actually make this watchable work um (laughs) unfortunately like this uh this you know little veer off cost them valuable time on the production so it really meant they had to do a lot of things uh faster than they would have liked on the back end of this but i think Mm -hmm. it was worth it to spend the time and actually get the story in there properly Um, They brought a lot of, you know, a lot of people together to help fix this. Um, I have to like first give a shout out to my girl, Brenda Chapman, who was uh, a part of this story team. You know, I love her. So Mm. um, I think, you know, I'm not not sure how integral she was, but I'm going to say that she was very (laughs) integral. Um, they yeah. brought some like Disney, Disney legends, uh, Joe Grant, who's had worked with Walt back when Walt was alive on some of the iconic movies, Dumbo, Pinocchio. So like, they're kind of like assembling the best team possible to set this right. movie up for success from a story perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, cause I mean, stories, everything, right? If that was the mm-hmm. issue, with the first couple runs they took at this film, then you really need to get the best people in there to help solve those problems. Absolutely. And I know you mentioned them already, but they are always worth mentioning a second time. Howard Ashman and Alan Menken were back in the house for this Mm, film, hot off the heels of the success of The Little Mermaid. Katzenberg correctly identified that they could inject a little bit of that life that you noticed was missing from the Mm -hmm. Purdom version of this film. And similar to Little Mermaid, they decided to structure this film once again like a Broadway musical. So the way that they did that was with something that Alan referred to as story turns. Also, don't you love that I refer to them as Alan and Howard? Like we're best friends. They're not Mr. Mencken. They're not Alan Mencken. It's just Alan. No. Yeah. No, no. We're besties. Yeah. Even Howie, maybe. Howie. (laughs) Howie and Al best team yeah this con this concept of story turns that um alan Menken has talked about quite a bit is this idea that when the story is headed one way going into a song it will take another turn or change directions coming out mm-hmm. and the way yeah. that the way that it's structured means that we as an audience get a glimpse into how characters are feeling about things that are happening to them without needing them to talk about it because what's more boring than watching animated characters talk about their feelings. Like, how often do you want to sit there and right. watch that happen? Answer, never. You never want to watch that happen. It's it's something that you can tell that's, like, a big difference between, like, original, like, Walt Disney films, where those songs were really just, like, a glimpse with the character's feelings mm. and not really progressing the plot forward. Yes. Like, Good really point. at all. Yeah. Like, that's, like, such a difference, whereas now they're actually, like, writing the script or, you know, they're building the story mm-hmm. with the songs. And so they're actually integral to the plot, which is like, absolutely, I think, you know, yes. a turn that they took with little mermaid. And like, it's now a huge mm-hmm. part of, you know, the Disney montage, as I like to call it. It's yes. like a, a staple of all their musical films now. Yes. Come through Lish. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I mean, we see, that concept best I would say in the opening number of this film like Mm -hmm. that whole bell number where she's coming into town and you're seeing her interact but not interact with all the different townspeople I mean the story writers and like the producers directors everyone knew that Belle needed to communicate how she felt about her place in the town how Mm -hmm. everyone felt about her including Gaston and like what she as a character valued that needed to be communicated to audiences within the first 10 minutes for them to get on board with her as the heroine and 
I mean, Mencken's goal with the music, as always, was to be as entertaining as possible. So you get these over-the-top numbers where the animation is super energetic. There's a lot of stuff moving on screen. You have the music taking all sorts of interesting twists and turns. There's never a dull moment. Um, And a fun fact, actually, about the music and its role in the film is that when you combine the minutes of film that don't have either a song or score playing in the background, it is only five minutes. Oh, wow. Only five minutes of this film don't have music playing in some way or another, which makes sense again because of the fact that it was Howard and Alan. Like they, they are very much the second iteration of the Sherman brothers. You know, the Sherman brothers from back in the day with Walt, that kind Mm -hmm. of resident musicians Mm -hmm. kind of feel, which I just love Howard and Alan. What a beautiful friendship for the ages, like truly stars. Seriously. I love them. The best. They're the best. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked, we've talked about the music, what it can do for the characters and us as an audience getting to know them. So why don't we just spend more time diving into the characters? Because I think That is really one of the key things that makes Beauty and the Beast resonate so much with people because the characters are not one dimensional. They're robust. They're Mm well-rounded. So, and, and this is a thing that you and I have often talked about the difference between Disney and studios like DreamWorks or Universal, right? When we've talked about Mm -hmm. why films from those studios don't do as well, it's often because, well, they don't have as good of music and the characters just don't feel believable. There's nothing about them. That draws me right. in unless it's Prince of Egypt. <laughs> if it's Prince of Egypt, I'm I'm on board. Anything else, it's just yeah. it doesn't it doesn't. And I mean they already well. had the characters to work with there. <laughs> right. They didn't even actually do any work. They made Moses younger, which was a great yeah. decision. Um but yeah, these great other call. studios don't seem to have the same grasp of how to create believable characters. So that's one of the biggest secrets most people would say to Disney's success, mm-hmm. right? That combination yeah. of animation and totally. character. And it's a very difficult balance to strike. And in the original story of Beauty and the Beast, there's really only those two main characters, right? You've got Beauty and the Beast. And there's not much development with them. They kind of stay static. Um, and because they're both protagonists, you really have to give them distinct personalities, distinct ways of be- like of moving. They need to have very different... Um, inner turmoil. They need to interact with everyone else differently. So developing Belle and the Beast further was a pretty big project um, for the animators and the script writers. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's like the interesting thing about what they did with this like second iteration, because the, the characters were not there. That's like the genius of mm-hmm. it. Like that's, that was the second act problem that they had was that it was just Belle and the Beast basically like sitting in a room for like the whole like (laughs) second act of the movie and that eating oatmeal yeah (laughs) and that's why like you know Walt uh, and his team like way back in the you know the 30s and 40s had such a hard time getting this movie made is because they just like didn't know how to like fill that space and Mm -hmm. what this team did is they like injected all of these you know background characters because i would call this movie an ensemble cast oh really totally so it's like totally yes bell and the beast you know they're the the protagonists but they that's how they saved the movie honestly was with Mm -hmm. all these different characters that you cared about yep and yeah i'll let you get back to to bell but that's just my little snippet (laughs) there no it's a great point and i think Adding those other characters allowed them to build the arguably three main characters, those being Belle, Beast, mm-hmm. and Gaston, out even further because it gave them foils to operate off of. It gave them more environmental cues that they could mm-hmm. relate to, interact with, you know, to show more yeah. sides of their personality. And one of the things that the filmmakers really wanted to accomplish with Belle was that they didn't want her to just be pretty. Like, obviously, her name means Mm -hmm. beauty. Her looks have got no parallel and whatever else. But they knew that they wanted her to be a heroine who led with her brains. And this was something that Howard Ashman and Linda Wolverton, one of the screenwriters in particular, were really spearheading. And they were very committed to the idea of her being a reader from the very, very beginning. So this, like, now stereotype Mm -hmm. of, like, oh, you like reading? You're like Belle. That really comes from these two. And that opening scene fun fact, was actually inspired by Wolverton's childhood. When she was a kid, she would run errands for her mom and she would walk into town while reading a book. 
and she got so good at navigating her way that everyone knew she was coming. The like shopkeeper would have the stuff ready for her. She never had to look up from her book. So you're this really good at the that. inspiration. You still I like am. walk to the subway while reading a book. Yeah. <laughs> they solved the problem of making reading an yeah. exciting activity because it became something she did amongst and around other people. And I mean, the fact that she teaches the beast to read, they read books together, it becomes a key. Mm-hmm. Not just a key part of who she is, but a key part of how she relates to those around her, which is clever. And yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, and just that you mentioned Wolverton, I just have to plug in there. This was like the first Disney animated film where they actually brought a screenwriter in to help. Yes. And I forgot to mention this before. And we were talking mm-hmm. about the story where it's like, usually the, you just storyboard it or, you know, with the, with the musicals, you'll have those guys involved, but they actually brought a screenwriter in to help develop right. this. And I think that that served the plot of this movie very, very well. And I think mm-hmm. it's something that like Disney has continued on. I don't, you know, can't speak to every single one of their films, but it's definitely, you know, a script is, I think more involved because of this film and a lot of their movies. So that was a cool little. Totally. We see that evolution into them of treating animated films like real films. All right. So, I mean, we're, we talked about Belle. We got to, we got to mention, and I mean, please keep your panties on curves. Like I know, <laughs> I know you love Gaston. I do. <laughs> I really do so yeah. much. Like I, I've told you, I've told you about my passion. Like for one thing, he puts that cape on and I'm out of here. Like I'm, I'm just done for the ponytail comes down. I'm done. But yeah, when I okay. lived and worked at Disney world, he was the hot mm-hmm. ticket. Okay. He had just been introduced in Fantasyland, and I went and visited him the one day I waited for like two hours mm-hmm. when I finally got to the front of the I line, bet. he's like, you want to do you want to do a great picture? I'm like, absolutely. So he's like, stand here. I stood there. He's like, put your hand on my bicep, feel how big it is. And I did. And it was like, oh, and then he dipped me. But fun fact, I didn't know where this was going. So I'm just standing there like a log, like a board tilted backwards. So it's not cute. I just look like I have an issue. So then I went back to him the next day and it was the same actor and he recognized he recognized me yeah. and he went, oh, back for more, Aria. And I said, listen, Gaston, I did not do yeah. you any favors. And the photo I took, I showed him the photo. He went, well, that's not good at all, is it? And I was like, no. So then he dipped me for real and it was amazing. <laughs> all right. So now that Curbs has got that out of her system, um, I just <laughs> talk about animating him because I think this is going to be one of the bigger challenges on this film because you have a villain, like you said, that you're you're wanting people to love. He's got to mm-hmm. provide comic relief. He's still got to mm-hmm. look like a villain though. Like you got to look at him and know, you know, because mm-hmm. while you are trying to appeal to adults, this is a movie that's still largely intended for younger audiences. So True. Yeah. The the role that the characters play in the movie has to be really clear. And I think they were they did something really cool with the like juxtaposition of Gaston and the Beast. Where it's like the beast outwardly, you know, not so attractive and Gaston, you know, really good looking on the outside, but like, you know, kind of a pile of garbage uh, obsessed (laughs) with himself. He is a dumpster fire and I love him. (laughs) Like narcissist, you know, like all the things. So, I mean, I think that was like a big challenge and one of our favorite animators worked on him. Yes. Love him. You know, really talented guy. And I think, you know, one of the like crowning moments of his career, in my opinion, was how Mm -hmm. he put Gaston together. And that, you know, it was like one of those like uh, Glenn King, Jody Benson moments where it's like the animation plus the voice is just coming together like so strong. Like watching this movie again, there's so many like moments like in Gaston's songs and like in his big moments where you just like, oh, it's just like it works so well, like the voice and the animation and the music tied together. It's so good. You know, one of the it best really parts is. of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so terrifying about Gaston as a villain, because he's considered one of the best Disney villains of all time. I think oh, most yeah, people would put him sure. up there. For sure. And I think a lot of people do that, though, is because when you think about what makes him a villain, people like that exist. Like misogynistic, mm-hmm. yeah. sexist, manipulative, violent, like 
intolerant. Yeah. Like he he is everything that anyone in a minority or anyone who's outside of, you know, what's considered proper or good in society. Mm-hmm. Like he's what you would fear because he is like mm-hmm. he doesn't kill the beast because he thinks he's dangerous. It's just to get what he wants, which is so scary. Yeah. <laughs> like it's so scary. And, and there's and there's you. like a charm with him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's the precursor to Hans. Like we see a second version of that with Hans. And I think the difference, though, is what you were mm-hmm. saying about like Andreas Dejas challenge was to make it obvious to a child that he's still the villain. Like Hans, they fooled everybody. They took mm-hmm. it. They It was Gaston 2.0, Gaston on acid. You know, that would have been that would have been too soon. Yes. You know, we weren't ready. We're, we're, we wouldn't have been ready for Hans in the early 90s. You no, know? it would not have gone over well because people were still getting used to the dynamic of like, yeah. you know, hero, villain. How does yeah. that look in an animated film? Yeah, totally. It's, oh, man. And I think just by the fact of Gaston being so handsome and the Beast not, they're already like blurring those lines a little bit on like what you're expecting visually. Like it's already yeah. not quite so black and white. That makes sense. But it's interesting you say that because, and I feel like I've said that a lot because everything interests me in this film, (laughs) but um, one of Glenn Keane's biggest challenges on this film was giving the Beast a clear sense of humanity Mm -hmm. because he is a protagonist and not the villain. So, I mean, the trope they used were his eyes, right? That's how Belle recognized him after he became a human. That's how you could tell that there was something about him that was not all animal um and that was the question that glenn keen was trying to answer is like how do you give a beast sorrowful eyes like how do you make someone Mm -hmm. who's not quite human not quite animal he's not comfortable with either so i mean most people know this but it's good to go over it again keen was inspired by like oxen gorillas lions bears wolves Mm -hmm. to make the beast this hybrid and using human eyes as his reference, he was able to combine these things into a character that is imposing and threatening, but not scary. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think most, like, I remember as a kid, I was afraid of everything. The Beast never scared me, ever. Even with his big voice yeah, yeah. and that cool Agreed. cape, yeah. you know? And mm-hmm. actually, the cape was a prop that Keen used to give the Beast a sense of grace and movement that animals wouldn't have, right? Mm-hmm. He's constantly playing with that cape, right. twirling it around. It's flowing behind him. It really just makes him feel closer to humans than animals. There has to be mm-hmm. human elements in order for, like, his relationship with Belle to work. Like, the, yes. know, the fact that he, you know, mostly stands and, like, how, like you said with the cape, how he moves and his eyes. If those elements aren't there, then, mm. like, this this gets weird really fast. Yeah. And my all-time favorite piece of animation, when he runs his hands through her hair when mm-hmm. she's, like, leaving. Oh, my gosh. Like, that, first of all, kills me every time kills me because it's beautiful the best piece of animation i've like ever seen in my life honestly so believable so real it's such a human action but he's got this big Mm -hmm. paw with the claws oh my gosh it's just oh i get choked up just thinking about it it's just so beautiful man yeah all of these things we're talking about is really just can be summarized by the idea of this film is about animating personalities and not simply just Mm -hmm. shapes and bodies because all of the animated objects have similar things going on, right? Like mm-hmm. the animators took into consideration what materials are these objects made of? Like what do they typically get used for? Like those types of things helped inform how they drew objects to represent humans, right? One of my favorite um, animated parts in this is like Lumiere in the BR guest because of how mm. they made him move in a way that like he's dancing, but like he, yes. he doesn't even have like two legs. Like he's just got like this, <laughs> this stump and like still somehow it's so like fluid and like groovy yes. and you're like Lumiere, yes. like getting down and it's just like so smooth. Everyone who took one of these characters like really thought about it and like, like you said, injected a personality into Mm -hmm. the movement and like how everything flowed, which like brought brought life to characters that, you know, maybe only had, you know, not as much like talking time or not as much development, but because of like how they were animated, you still got a bit of a sense of who they are, who they were um, and all of that. 
I would have to say, right. I would like to share with everyone that my favorite instance of the animated objects mm-hmm. becoming personalities and fully rounded, like fleshed out people is Mrs. Potts. Yeah. I don't love Mrs. Potts, but there was this anecdote as I was reading up on all of this, the goodness that went into this film. Um, the directors were talking about how, you know, Mrs. Potts is a fragile but firm character. And one of the most defining moments of animation for them to get that across to the audience is the scene where they're kind of like chastising the beast when he's getting angry that Belle's not coming down to dinner. And she starts up on the mantle mm-hmm. of the fireplace and they needed her to get down to the floor. Yeah. But the directors are like, we all knew if she just jumped from the mantle to the floor, she'd shatter. It would be a suicide mission. So they animated a pillow onto the floor so that she wouldn't actually, you know, Love kill it. herself. Um, and it's like those little attention, like attention to detail pieces that we as audiences, we just absorb them all at once. But when you break them down, it's like, oh, I can yeah. see where they did this, right? Like I can see, like you were talking about with Lumiere yeah. moving without really moving. It's like, it's clever. All of it is so clever. Mm-hmm. You think you're clever, yeah. don't you? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like when you, you like break it down, people t- drew that. Like they, they had a blank paper and they drew mm-hmm. it. And that to me is still amazing. Like just some incredibly talented people on this movie. And it's like, it's a, a film that really carries weight to this day. Like for people that worked on it, it's, it's really cool. I also want to mention, we talked about this a little bit in Little Mermaid, the CAPS computer system. Oh yeah. Remind me what that is. The scanning software for like ink and paint and the compositing system that they um, invented at Pixar that Disney had started to use on some of their films. They used it in a few select scenes in Little Mermaid and used it uh, fully on the rescuers down under and then used it again for this film. It basically allowed Disney to simulate multiplane effects and placing a character a certain distance from the background. We kind of talked about this on Snow White with like the multiplane mm-hmm. camera that Walt invented. This is very similar idea, just like 60 years more technologically advanced. So really cool thing that they brought in for this movie. So the sexy, sleek version of it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. of course, there's uh, updates to that even still. I, I really noticed it this time. Um the the ballroom scene for example that entire like background is a cg background so this is one of the first times they're taking a cg background and then 2d characters and kind of like marrying those two art forms together um and it allowed them to have some of those shots we we talked earlier i really hate you know when it goes up and you see the babies <laughs> on the ceiling the I just like why and they like kind of move and it's like really weird I think I'm missing something there but I don't get the babies oh but after the babies it like goes down to that like beautiful like sweeping pan while they're like in their twirl oh. and it's just like a stunning camera move it's in like all the trailers it's like the shot from this movie that they were only able to do because of this Every time I watch this movie, I watch that scene twice. Like, I have to see the... First of all, the creepy babies... I just need to address the creepy babies for one second. I think that it's supposed to be that, like, this the whole castle's enchanted, so, like, the ceiling's enchanted. That's why they move. The paintings are also coming to life. It's stupid, and they're ugly, and, like... I don't know why they felt that was necessary. Nah, I don't know. Give me another yeah. sweeping pan shot. Give me another twirl. Give me a dip. You know, like give me something else. But it, whatever. That's beside the point. But I was just, my point, my biggest point was that it's such a stunning scene that I have to watch it more than mm-hmm. once. And like the camera wasn't yeah. just moving. The angles were actively changing and evolving throughout the scene, but so seamlessly that it's like a fully immersive sequence mm-hmm. of animation. Like I, yeah, like, no one can see my hands are on top of my head it's just it blows my mind it's so beautiful like it's no wonder that they wanted to bring that scene physically yeah. to life at the be our guest restaurant yeah. like it makes sense because it's just unlike anything you could dream or imagine yeah it's stunning and like i said it would not have been possible without the this the implement of cg animation like you just can't you can't structure it that way with your 2d backgrounds another right. like fun fact not about that scene but um, the last scene where uh, Belle and the Beast are dancing. Did you know they copied mm-hmm. that like straight out of Sleeping Beauty? Like it's the exact same dance that like Philip and Aurora have at the end of that movie because they just ran out of time. 
And I blame, I blame Pergam. Like, you know, they just like, we're out of time. And they're like, we can't design the sequence. We've got one. It's, Let's just do this. It's funny because once you said it, like once you, once I saw this in our notes, I was like, oh yeah, no, it is the yeah. exact same. And then when I rewatched the film, I was like, oh yeah, they yeah, are the same. The but same. it doesn't really bother me because A, it's at the end of the movie. And also mm-hmm. I think the films are so far apart that I forget. Even if I was to watch oh, totally. Beauty and then Beauty and the Beast, I wouldn't put that together. But it is, I mean, it's left over from the Xerox era, you know, where they're just like, this yeah. is so much easier. Why wouldn't we do this? We don't have time. Yeah, totally. Like, it doesn't yeah. ruin it for me either, but I just, I thought that was interesting. That it's just like, we don't want to mm-hmm. design this. Let's yeah. copy it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. <laughs> well, I mean, all of these technological advancements, the work with the animation and like, I mean, the stuff they could do with color palettes too, because the advancements mm-hmm. in information yeah. technology made it easier for them to like get more nuanced palettes. So like the fact even that the ballroom has so many shades of gold and brown that are distinct, it's not like flat yeah. colors. Like all of all of these things actually earned them a scientific and technical Academy Award for design and development of animation mm-hmm. systems, yeah. which I mean is clearly well-deserved. And this is only one of many awards this film won. And I mean, we mentioned it at the beginning. We mentioned it in the middle. I'm mentioning it again now. This film mm-hmm. has had such a significant impact, not only on Disney's success as a studio and as a company, but I think on just individual mm-hmm. people. It just is, it's just oh, yeah. a completely, it was a brand new experience for people. And they were actually brave enough to show a screening of the film when it was only 70% finished at the New York Film Festival mm-hmm. because the filmmakers were A, so excited about it and so confident in it, but also they yeah. were wanting to keep riding this momentum they had with Little Mermaid, right? It's like, Disney's out there mm-hmm. again. We out yeah. here. People are excited. Let's give them what they want. And this was the first time that Disney had allowed film critics to see a film before it was done. So like half of it was still black and white pencil sketches, a lot of rough stuff, half color, yeah. only some of like only half the movie had effects, but the audience loved it. And it they had like a yeah. 10 minute standing ovation, which apparently, which is wild, like 10 minutes yeah. of people clapping Crazy. and being like, give me more. This is incredible. And One of the saddest things I know for you and I as fans of his work Mm -hmm. is that Howard Ashman actually died six. Is it six or is it eight? I've heard both. It doesn't really matter. He died at least half a year before the film was actually released. So he he was pretty much near death when they did that screening. So like he wasn't able to attend that screening at Mm -hmm. the point, but he heard about it after and how huge of a success it was going to be. And yes, died very shortly yeah. after that and a tragic loss like i mean to mm-hmm. both the disney community and but also just like film at large the work that mm-hmm. he was able to accomplish within the few years that he worked with the disney company is incomparable like he set dis arguably like we talked about this with the little mermaid episode but like arguably he was responsible for the success success of that film we owe him the renaissance We owe him so much. And I mean, so it is, it's super heartbreaking that he didn't get to see the success, Mm -hmm. but I mean, the film was immediately successful. They cleaned it up, they released it to the public and it made over $440 million at the box office, which is crazy. It was the first animated film to make more than $100 million at the box office. Way to go, Mm BATB. And it was the third highest grossing film of the year. So in 1991, it was the third highest grossing film. Mm-hmm. which is crazy because animated films yeah. at that time were not considered like legitimate films. Like it wasn't, it wasn't held to the no. same standard as Disney ones are now. Right. It was also nominated for an Oscar, which was completely unheard of at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, the best picture Ox- Oscar. Yeah. The best, the best picture Oscar. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then because of yeah. that, they actually made a whole category just for animated films. Like the, right. Like the waters have shifted for animation at this point. Like what people are expecting to see has changed and the entertainment Mm -hmm. value has gone up. It's not just for kids anymore. Like this movie had a a huge impact on that. Um, Mm -hmm. It also was the first animated film to win Golden Globe for best musical or comedy. It was everywhere. It won three Oscars for best songs or sorry, nominated for three Oscars for best songs. And um, mm-hmm. just kind of cleaned up, you know, critically and with people. So it was just like a hit all around it. 
you know, more yeah. than made its money back. I mean, that's even what we talked about, just the box office, never mind how much it made with its VHSs, oh. with its DVDs, yes. with its sequel well, that I need to watch every Christmas. <laughs> a couple sequels because they have the Enchanted Christmas, but also like Magical Tales with Belle or whatever. Right, and then right, I think yeah. there may even be one more. But I mean, yeah, like they really cashed in on the momentum they had with merchandising that they got mm-hmm. with Little Mermaid. So that went yeah. well. So they did that with Beauty and the Beast for sure. And I mean, yeah. its belovedness stretches further than most other Disney films. Like it's sustained its popularity since it initially came out. And it was actually mm-hmm. because it was so beloved. It was one of the first Disney films to be released on DVD and had multiple like out of the vault re-releases. And mm-hmm. actually... The reason it was released on DVD so early was because Star Wars special editions had been doing really well. And as a result of that, they're like, ooh, we can cash in on this hype. And let's also add back in more content to make people want to watch it who have seen it a million times but want to see it again. So they added that human again number back in. And I mean, I don't know if you're a fan of human again. Not very good, but okay. Thank you. You don't like human again? Oh, I actually, I always no, enjoy it. it's not good. I like it. You know what? But I, this is the difference no. between you and I. I like the music in Beauty and the Beast and Lish on popular opinion, you know, don't murder her or anything, but she doesn't love the music. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that a musical number is not something you jump yeah. down about. Then I'm adding it back in. Right. But, um... Yeah, so like it was given significant presence in the parks after doing so well. A lot of media. They had the live action remake in 2017. They've got the Be Our Guest restaurant, which you and I treated as sacred when we were there mm-hmm. a few years ago. Beautiful. We yeah. made our reservations yeah. for our final meal at Disney World. We're like, we will skip wishes tonight and we will go to Be Our Guest, have yeah. a steak dinner with truffle fries and this okay anyone who's oh been God, there so knows good. that the ballroom is stunning the food's amazing but guess where they sat yeah. us in the library room which is wild because there was no one else there like we literally were like the last guests and they sat us in this it was like so dumb but you know what we got to meet the beast after he gave us mm-hmm. a great selfie we had a lovely nice. time it was It is one of the most transportive parts of Disney World for me. And like when I walk into Fantasyland and hear that like Beauty and the Beast loop of area music near Gaston's Mm -hmm. Tavern and like Maurice's shop, like I get, oh, I get choked up even hearing it here at home because it just brings back not even just Beauty and the Beast specific memories, but just like it's so entrenched in the culture of Magic Kingdom that it just, it is a fixture. Like it's, it's a thing that mm-hmm. I need to experience every time I'm there. And I mean, they also gave us Celine Dion. This film gave everyone, gave the world Celine Dion because <laughs> it was the first major breakout she had. It was like, hello, Canadian queen. Yes, please sing with Peebo. It was the first Disney film to have a pop version of the titular yeah. song played during the credits. And we chose the queen herself, Celine Dion. So we have that this film to thank mm-hmm. for her too. So I mean, that's worth noting. All of these things together is what got this film (laughs) selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2002 because the Library of Congress was like, hey, this is culturally, historically, and aesthetically important. And guess what? I Mm -hmm. would have to agree with them. I don't think I can disagree on this point. I am just fired up and passionate about this one. Man. Similar to Little Mermaid, it just kept the momentum going. You know, like Little Mermaid really like kicked it off, but this was like the best possible follow-up to that to just like bring it to the next level. It honestly like started, uh, you know, we talked about the cultural significance of Little Mermaid and what that did to the studio. But we're now at the point again, where Disney was back in the like Snow White days where all the best people want to work there. And it's drawing the top talent again. It's like, it's, you know, just as iconic. And it's like, it carries uh, like a certain level, the fact that you worked on this film and that you were a part of Disney at the time. I know from like yeah. working in the industry now, when you see names pop up of people that have like worked on this film and I've, you know, been lucky enough to work with a couple of them. It's just like, there's just a level of like respect and, and 
admiration for what they were able to do oh on yeah this movie and the whole team together street cred yeah at its finest because they were part of Absolutely. something no matter what their role was big or small it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. they were because the crew was like less than 70 people and over 40 of them were animators so yeah. if you were involved mm-hmm. in animating any part of this film you were a part of history not just disney history but exactly. like film history such a huge achievement yeah Okay, guys, apology time. Um, I have a little bit of a confession for this week. Um, I wrote a little note to myself while researching for this podcast to look up and do some research on a fellow named Joe Grant. And I've just got to be honest, I completely forgot to do that. So I saw somewhere that he was a legend and a guy you gotta know, and I have no idea who he is. So I'm sorry to everyone for failing you. I'm mostly sorry to Joe Grant, whoever you are. I will Google you tomorrow. <laughs> and guys, hold her accountable to that. I want to see you sliding into the <laughs> Scenario D podcast DMs, confirming that Lish has looked up who Joe Grant is. It makes me laugh every time. Honestly, every time I've looked at our notes and I see that comment there, I'm cackling. I'm cackling. Now, <laughs> on the complete other end of the spectrum, whereas Lish paid too little attention, I must apologize for paying much too much uh, to my boy Gaston. Sorry, not sorry, but he owns my soul, and I can't really stop talking about him. Once you get me going, I can't stop. Lish is already doing the cut it off motion hand across the throat trying to get me to shut up and move on so we'll do that but please know that i'm actually not sorry this is not a real apology it never will be gaston i love you don't ever change so our sources for this week you're probably wondering guys where did you find all this great information and we are going to tell you right now the first source which was a lovely surprise for me is written by the film's very own linda wolverton who you may recall was one of the screenwriters and it was a charming little book called bell's library so thank you linda for your contribution thanks linda uh we also watched a very interesting documentary on youtube called tale as old as time the making of beauty and the beast a lot of good nuggets in there Mm-hmm. And many documentaries, I feel, we kind of sifted through for this one because the next one I'd like to give a shout out to actually comes from the Beauty and the Beast Laserdisc, if you can imagine. Remember when Laserdisc was a thing? I don't either. So the Beauty and the Beast Laserdisc had a feature called Beauty and the Beast Behind the Scenes Documentary, and it was very interesting. And we've always got to mention one of our favorite books, The Art of Walt Disney by Christopher Finch. And to round this list of resources out, I need to give a shout out to two channels on YouTube, which provided me with lots of delicious Beauty and the Beast nuggets. The first is Channel Frederator with their video, 107 Beauty and the Beast Facts You Should Know. And secondly, to Wicked Binge for their video, Dark Beauty and the Beast Theories That Change Everything. I can confirm that these theories change the way I look at the film and probably have changed the way I look at it forever and always. So if you are interested in that one, highly recommend checking it out. Lish, make sure you check it out. It'll change your life. Yeah, wow. I've got to watch that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was some uh, spicy theories. Absolutely. That you talked yeah. about. Yeah. And we all need a little spice here and there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you're looking for more spice or more shenanigans like these, please, as always, make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. And don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D podcast. You are going to love the magic we're making there.